Constant Contact's email and digital marketing tools have been helping small businesses build better customer relationships for over 25 years. And things just got better because now you can add SMS marketing to drive even more results. With SMS, you can easily grab customers' attention right where they are, on their phones. Send timely offers, personalized messages, important updates, and other unique information to boost engagement and drive response. Go to ConstantContact.com to get started for free. So this week we are finally back with the second part of the Oakland County Child Killer. If you haven't listened to the first part, please go back and do so because I discuss the basics and each of the victims, whether confirmed or perceived on there. I'm not going to go over the cases or like the victims in this episode except for linking them to suspects because a few of them link in there with DNA evidence and such. But if you haven't followed us on Twitter, please do so at Great Unsolved. And we're on Instagram at The Great Unsolved. And I'm not quite sure if we have other social media because my mind is blank right now. But if you go to the description, we have our little link tree there. And if you click on it, it'll show you like all the different places we have, like website where the podcast plays, all that kind of stuff. So be sure to check that out and follow us. I update things quite a lot. I'm trying to get used to Instagram. Um, I'm not good at it. My boyfriend kind of knows, like, the formulas and stuff of that. And he's been trying to, like, coach me, like, you gotta post daily, you gotta post at this time. But I just um, forget. I don't remember. I don't know. Twitter is so easy for me because I can just go on for a little bit, read week retweet and then it's done but instagram is not my thing also we got another cat we named him bundy also known as ted bundy we were trying to keep like we want creepy names so or like something related to like horror or true crime so we're thinking about scooby like scooby-doo or we were going to name him church as in like the pet cemetery the cat was winston churchill and they called him church but we just bundy stuck and so we have a cat named ted bundy now so that's gonna be fun to like introduce to people anyways um that gives me another reason to do a disclaimer because now we have the bunny and two cats however all three are sleeping right now so hopefully it stays that way for the remainder of this episode And then there was no reason for that disclaimer. But let's just jump on in to the suspects of the Oakland County Child Killer. So our first suspect is Christopher Bush. Kind of think that's how you pronounce his name, but it's spelled B-U-S-C-H. Anyways, on May 7th, 1976, Christopher Bush sexually violated... Vincent Gunnels. He was a teenager at the time, and it was later found out that Bush had been repeatedly grooming and raping Vincent. So he is a serial offender in the pedophile world, I guess. I'm not quite sure how to state that, but you know what I mean. And Christopher was the son of Harold Lee Bush, who was a top executive at General Motors. And that kind of just put him more into the limelight and kind of shocked people. 
like, oh, the son of this executive did this? How? What? You know, and it also kind of linked him to a lot of the cases. So these children were, they weren't in like the slums of Detroit and stuff like that. They were in the more affluent neighborhoods and being the son of a top executive, so was Christopher. So he had a little better access to these children than some of our other suspects. Christopher was also someone who took place in child pornography. It was not stated if he, like, produced it, helped, like, get children or whatever, but he did have some role in that criminal industry, and that just automatically makes everyone hate him, as we should, but it also kind of gives way to, you know, maybe he had been kidnapping kids for a while to get them into this criminal industry, and maybe he just snapped and started killing them or something along those lines. So the father and the uncle of Timothy King eventually asked the police to notify the public about Bush because of his history. He had been obviously in jail multiple times with the child pornography and just being a pedophile overall. And he had actually been in custody like right before Timothy King's murder for pornography and pedophilia charges. And then he was let out, and the timeline kind of links up perfectly with when Timothy King was killed. So that's a little suspect. In November of 1987, though, Christopher was found dead in his apartment, and it was ruled a suicide by gunshot. But I'm going to tell you a few things. And after I tell you those, you're going to be like, there's no way he committed suicide. There's absolutely, that doesn't make sense. Because when I was reading it, I just, I can't fathom how people rule certain things suicides when it is so obvious it's not a suicide. And this was one of them. I was just sitting there like, how stupid do you have to be to rule this a suicide? But I don't know, not being mean to any law enforcement. I'm sorry, but that's just what was going through my mind. So, apparent suicide by gunshot. He had to shoot himself, right? But there was no gunshot residue on his hands. There's always gunshot residue, no matter like how hard you try. And there was none on his hands. Now, you can wash off gunshot residue, but I doubt a dead body is going to go wash his hands after to make it seem like he didn't commit suicide okay that just doesn't seem right to me there was no blood splatter once again blood splatter is something you can't just get rid of there's it's so minuscule and there's so many different patterns and so many different little spots of blood there should have been some sort of blood splatter but there was none so it seems like either someone cleaned it up or someone planned this out very carefully Now, there was one bullet hole between his eyes, but there were four shell casings in the room. But they kind of didn't seem like anything else had been shot. So, was there a fight? Did Christopher Bush shoot someone three times or something, and then they shot him and staged this all? I don't really know. 
but there were four shell casings and only one bullet hole. He was also neatly wrapped under his sheets. I couldn't find, like, exact ideas of how he was wrapped in the sheets. I'm assuming at least one of his hands had to be out of the sheet because if it wasn't, that's just... Obviously, it wasn't suicide if his hands were wrapped up, right? So I'm assuming at least one hand had to be out, but apparently it was very neat. It was a very neat crime scene that it wouldn't look like that normally if you killed yourself. There were also blood-stained ligatures found in the apartment. So all these things just point to it definitely not being a suicide, and it definitely being, like, a badly staged murder. Like, someone tried to make it look like a suicide, but just didn't take all of this into account. After this, there was a search of Bush's house, and it revealed a horrifying sketch. The sketch was of a screaming child that resembled Mark Stebbins, who was a victim of the Oakland County child killer. Could Bush have been, like, remembering when he killed the child and drew a picture of it, or remembering him in captivity, could this have been drawn right before Bush killed himself? And maybe that was a, like, good reason to kill himself. You know what I mean? Like, maybe he was thinking back through it and he was like, oh no. But then again, I don't think he killed himself, so there's that. And it was pinned to the wall in the room that he died in. So, that's very creepy, too. I'm assuming he died, like, in his bedroom if he was wrapped in sheets. So, just having a picture like that in your bedroom seems really suspicious in general. In 2011, police did state that they believed there was more than one killer, Their theory at that time was that Bush killed with Vincent. Vincent was the one who got groomed and abused by Bush when he was a teenager. And they made this kind of discovery theory because Vincent's hair was found on Christine Millich, who was victim number three of the Oakland County child killer. Normally, I'm all for DNA evidence and... Like, I'm still for DNA evidence. I think this points to Vincent being involved in some way. But we'll go through more DNA evidence of, like, DNA clearing some of these suspects. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Just because that DNA didn't match theirs doesn't mean they didn't kill them. Like, there was obviously some kind of pedophile ring thing going on. So it could have been someone else from that ring that the DNA belonged to, but then the suspect could have ultimately killed the child. So that brings us to suspect number two, Vincent Gunnels. So obviously the hair on Christine's body, victim number three, was DNA matched to either Vincent or someone in his family's lineage. So they weren't sure it was Vincent. But, I mean, he seems the most likely because I couldn't find anything about anyone in his family being linked to any of the suspects or the murder cases, you know. So it seemed that the hair most likely belonged to Vincent. His excuse was that he was often in 
Bush's car, who was suspect number one. So that could be where the hair came from. So by saying this, he never really said he didn't know how the hair ended up there. His theory was, well, maybe Bush killed the kid and then my hair was in the car and then he put the kid in the car and that's how my hair got on it. Kind of just DNA transfer. And he pushed the blame away from himself and back onto Bush by stating this, which is kind of clever because they were already looking at Bush for being a pedophile and having many charges against him and working in child pornography. But it kind of seems really, like, suspect that he would push the blame to him right away, you know? It just, I don't know. It seems odd to me. So, suspect number three was Richard Lawson. And Richard Lawson was a known pedophile in the area and had been turned into police before the murders happened. So, when I say turned in, I mean, like, yeah, he was turned in, but then he was out of jail before the murders started happening. So, police ended up using him as an informant. And for some reason, they gave him a badge. I have never really heard of informants getting badges, but maybe they did things different at this time. Anyway, he got a badge. And it was discovered that he would use the badge and show it to children to continue on with his pedophile activities while not being questioned by anyone. And it has long been suspected that the Oakland County child killer was someone with some kind of authority, because children generally feel safe around people of authority. They feel safe with their teachers, with cops, with firemen, that kind of stuff. And someone with a police badge would look pretty official to a child who doesn't know any better. And I mean, it would look official to me now. If someone like came up to my door and showed me a police badge, I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, search the house, do whatever you want, because I... I can't tell the difference between, like, a real cop and someone faking it. I'm not that smart. So that would have given Richard Lawson a way to get the children to trust him, and he would be able to kidnap them easier. So this next suspect is where I kind of start faltering on the DNA use in this case. So suspect number four is Archibald Edward Sloan. Hair samples were found in his car that matched the ones found on Timothy King and Mark Stebbins' bodies. So, the same hair samples were in his car, as well as on two of the confirmed victims. However, there was nothing else tying him to the murders, and he also stated that his friends, who were also pedophiles, great group of people here, am I right, used his car often. So he kind of just gave his car to random pedophiles and let them use it. And basically here he was saying that their hair could have gotten in the car and they could have been the ones who killed Mark and Tim. And that's how their hair got on them as well. In 2012, DNA tests shown that the hair in the car and on the bodies came from the same unidentified male. So it did not come from Archibald Edward Sloan, and that kind of made them count him out as a suspect. Their view now was that 
if his car or anything had anything to do with it, then it was someone else using his car and killing these kids. It wasn't him, which kind of seems weird to me because you don't know for sure. He could have, there could have been other people's hair in that car and on the kids when they were found, but he still could have been the one who murdered them. So I just, I don't think that DNA should have counted him out right away because there's a big possibility he could still be the suspect. It seems that Archibald Sloan bore somewhat of a resemblance to John Wayne Gacy because throughout a lot of my research, there was this witness that kept coming up who claimed to see Timothy King being abducted at the, like, 7-Eleven or whatever it was. And their description of the man who was abducting them, well, it was two men, actually. One was in his 20s, and one was described pretty much like John Wayne Gacy, like his build and his heights and everything. Now, John Wayne Gacy was in Michigan from 1976 to 1977, which when I read that, I was like, I never knew that. And if I had, this kind of links up. Not really the female victims in the case, but I could definitely see John Wayne Gacy being linked to Timothy and Mark because that was his basic MO. He killed, like, teenage boys, younger boys that type of thing, because he was a gay pedophile. But DNA tests later ruled him out as a suspect. Now, I'm not sure if the DNA tests were from the hair again. And if they were, I don't think he should be ruled out as a suspect either. The thing is that we believe all these cases are connected, but there could have been, like, one main killer. And since police believe there was a second person, at least... The second person could have only been around for, say, Mark and Timothy's murder. So maybe, just in theory, maybe Christopher, I don't know, was, he killed, like, all four, but then, like, John Wayne Gacy came in and helped with the two boys. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's not, like, a theory at all or anything, but I think it's something that could be explored, Maybe not with those suspects, but maybe not all four victims are linked to multiple suspects, if that makes sense. I can't even tell if I'm making any sense here, but I'm trying to work through it in my mind also. Suspect number five is Frank and Alan. Now, we don't have like a full suspect name for this one because the suspects came out of a letter with what people believe to be nicknames for these people. So a few weeks after Timothy King's body was found, Dr. Bruce Danto, who was a psychiatrist, got a written confession in the mail. I'm not sure how Dr. Danto, like, was related to the murders. I don't know if he was a psychiatrist the police used or anything, but this confession was mailed to him for some reason. It came from a man named Alan, and he was stating that he was an unwilling accomplice to his roommate, Frank. He claimed that both of them rode around town in the blue gremlin that had already been identified as the suspected killer's car, and they would look for victims, who obviously were children. 
mostly rich children, so their parents would suffer for sending Frank to Vietnam. So Frank and Alan were both, like, uh, veterans. They both went to Vietnam, but Frank apparently had PTSD or something from killing children, and in order to get back at people, he wanted to kill more children, I guess, because that makes sense to him. I don't know. So Dr. Danto was to respond by printing... Quote, Weather Bureau states trees to bloom in three weeks, end quote, in Sunday's edition of the Free Press. It was code words that this Allen guy had written in the letter. I don't know how this helped communicate anything, but he was willing to meet if Dr. Danto printed this in the paper, and then Allen would give him photographic evidence in exchange for immunity immunity from being charged for the case because, as he said, he was an unwilling accomplice. Um, I think like a week or two later, Dr. Bruce Danto agreed to meet Alan at a bar, but Alan never showed up, or at least never made himself known. He might have shown up and watched Dr. Danto for a while because there are cases of people doing that, but he never confessed or gave photographic evidence, and he never contacted anyone again. So it could have been a complete, just, why can't I think of the word? Hoax. It could have been a complete hoax just for attention or something along those lines. But Dr. Danto was pretty sure it was real. So we don't really know what happened to this Allen guy now or who he was in the first place. Our last, like, suspect suspect is Theodore Lamborghini. Lamborghini? Something along those lines. He was taken to court by Mark Stebbins' family in October of 2007. They accused him of kidnapping and murdering Mark, and they sought 25000 in damages for a wrongful death conviction. They stated that Theodore had held Mark in a home in Royal Oaks for four days and then smothered him during a sexual assault. I was interested in how they came up with the idea of Mark being held in a home in Royal Oaks. Because to this day, it's really unknown like where the killer held these kids when he had them for a period of time. So did the family have information that maybe cops didn't have, or were they just guessing here? In 2006, Theodore had confessed to being involved in a child pornography ring and sexually assaulting many young boys. Now, here's the interesting part. He pled guilty to 15 sex-related counts rather than getting a better plea bargain because he would have had to take a polygraph for the OCCK cases. So he was avoiding talking about the Oakland County child killer cases. He also refused to take a polygraph, even for a reduced sentence, but maintained his innocence. And in 2012, it seems that DNA ruled him out as a suspect. Once again, I don't think he should be ruled out, because just his want to, rather, like, his idea that he'd be better off in jail than doing a simple polygraph for the cases makes me think he is a high-ranking suspect, because most innocent people will just do the polygraph, and then they'll get a plea bargain, and they'll get a reduced sentence, 
But no, he didn't want any of that. He would rather suffer in jail than answer a few easy questions. So that kind of tells me he most likely would have failed the test. So the next bit of like information on a suspect that I found was someone who reminded someone of a suspect. I don't really know how to explain it. I'm just going to read these excerpts about it, okay? In 2005, an unidentified man who would later emerge to become a common figure in the case and has been referred to by the alias of Jeff was reminded of a relationship he had in 1977 with an acquaintance. In an interview given to Oakland County investigators in 2010, Jeff informed them of atypical observations and actions while driving and conversing with the acquaintance, such as taking him to buildings where satanic rituals were performed, according to the acquaintance. The acquaintance navigated through lesser-known routes associated with the case with ease. The acquaintance also spoke of details written in Alan's letter, and when I say that, I am talking about Alan and... Frank's letter where he admitted to being an unwilling accomplice. Jeff requested information about the Allen letter to help confirm his suspicions, but he was denied. In 2010, Jeff gave a recorded interview to Oakland County investigators and prosecutor Jessica Cooper to present evidence pertaining to the investigation. Jeff claimed to have tried to approach her with his findings and to convince her to place the case under the jurisdiction of the Department of the Department of Justice to expedite the case. The department was already involved as FBI investigators and through resources such as the VICAP database. Prosecutor Cooper dismissed his suggestions, and as there was no new evidence presented, his request to inspect the Allen letter was denied. Cooper describes the evidence on the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office blog as a rambling statement outlining a theory that the Oakland County child killer abductions and murders were related to pagan holidays, the lunar calendar, and Wiccan rituals. So Jeff proceeded to correspond with Deborah Jarvis, mother of victim Christine Millich, and investigative journalists such as Bill Proctor and Heather Collado Catello in 2010. He claimed that he was among a team of a dozen investigators involved with the case and could identify the perpetrator of the crimes, but refused to indicate which law enforcement division he worked for. He claimed to have invested 10,000 hours into the investigation over several years, but was reluctant to release his results as he doubted the competence of Wayne and Oakland County investigators. In a press release email, Jeff indicated possible meddling by Jessica Cooper and other reasons as to why he had not made his investigation public. According to Paul Hughes, an attorney representing Jarvis, who once again was the victim or the mother of victim Christine Melich, Jeff's investigation discovered the murder. So this attorney says his investigation really did discover the murder. However, according to Hughes, Jeff refused to identify the culprit unless the authorities divulged crucial information which Jeff requested during the initial phone questioning in 2010. Jeff wanted to positively confirm the identity of his suspect 
using the police evidence before proceeding further. In 2012, Jeff presented his findings to a select group of Detroit journalists on Hughes' cell phone. To preserve his anatomy, he insisted that his phone interview with Hughes not be recorded. He theorized that the killers were conducting Wiccan human sacrifice rituals coinciding with pagan celebrations or the Union lunar calendar. According to Jeff, there was a total of approximately 11 to 16 victims, significantly more than the four officially confirmed victims, but there are a lot of suspected ones that people just don't look to in the case. Jeff claimed his team found a number of similarities among the cases that were highly unlikely to be purely coincidental. Based on this information, Hughes attempted a lawsuit against the Oakland County authorities for $100 million, citing mishandling of the investigation and demanding Cooper's resignation. The lawsuit alleged a cover-up conspiracy and obstruction. Hughes' website solicited donations and offered a copy of Jeff's report for a donation of $1,500. The families of the victims and Cooper claimed that Hughes and Jeff were attempting to profit off of their distress. The case was dismissed in March 2012 for lack of evidence. So I don't really know what to say about that whole thing. Kind of sounds like a huge conspiracy that all the killings took place with pagan rituals and calendars and all that. But if they did line up, like on an actual lunar calendar, then that gives a little more leeway to this theory because I don't know I haven't looked into it but if they line up this guy might be right I mean there are pagan people out there and there are people who do human sacrifices as crazy as it sounds so why couldn't it have happened in Detroit at this time I'm not quite sure but I mean it's a theory to think about so that is going to be it for this week's episode. Next week's episode is going to be longer, but I had originally like researched this one for our normal 30-minute episode time, and now we've switched to hour-long episodes every Wednesday. Um, if you didn't know that, sorry to break the news to you, but we're not doing Tuesday and Thursdays anymore. We're doing one episode a week on Wednesday, and it'll be about an hour long starting next week. This one's a little shorter, like I said. Anyways, if you don't already, follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved and on Instagram at The Great Unsolved. I post at least daily, and on Twitter I post much more than daily. So go on there, interact with us, and keep up to date with new cases that we talk about. Anyways, we will see you next Wednesday for a new case. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.